Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. EU Confidential will get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Evolving into a broad energy company, harvesting power from the strong winds out at sea is one of our solutions for the European energy transition. We're talking about my first year as president of the European Commission. I started as Commission president on the 1st of December 2019. And we have quite an exceptional year behind us. We will all remember 2020, that's for sure. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And this week, an orgy of political analysis and conversation. Yes, we know there's been a lot of talk about a certain lockdown party in Brussels, and there's plenty to read about that on politico.eu and elsewhere. But we're going to romp past all of it on the podcast for this week at least and focus on the first year of Ursula von der Leyen's European Commission. You heard von der Leyen herself refer to that milestone at the top of the show. And we've assembled a top panel of political reporters to discuss how she and her team have done across the board in their first year and to look forward to what lies ahead. And later in this episode, you'll hear from Manfred Weber, the man who might himself have been Commission President if things had worked out a bit differently at a European Council summit last year. He ended up remaining as head of the European People's Party Group, the largest in the European Parliament, and he talks to our own David Herzenhorn and Maya de la Baum. But first, let's bring on this week's panel. We have given Reem and Matt the week off and we have brought in key members of our uh, Brussels newsroom. We're going to draw on the expertise from across the newsroom. Joining me to do that, our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hey there. Senior health reporter, Sarah Wheaton. Hi, Sarah. Hey. Tech reporter, Laura Kayali. Hi, Laura. Hi. And climate reporter, Kalina Orashakov. Hi, Kalina. Hi. So uh, thanks to you all for, for joining us here. Uh, David, why don't you start by just kind of setting the scene, you know, giving us a bit of the big picture, if you like. Uh, we did, of course, uh, grade all of the uh, commissioners on Politico.eu this week. You can read report cards for every commissioner. Um, and I'm sure they, they really enjoyed that bunch of journalists uh, grading their work. But how would you sum up the uh, commission's first year overall, and in particular, the commission president, Ursula von der Leyen? Well, 
they had an extraordinary year, right? And I think everybody did take into account the fact that this commission had barely been in office for 100 days. Uh, literally, the 100-day the kind of event uh, happened where normally you say the honeymoon period is over, and they are just slammed by this once-in-a-century health crisis combined with an economic shock. And so I think putting in context the ambitious plans that they had uh, to start with, uh, a European Green Deal, uh, on digital policy, all these sort of you know big issue, transformative concept stuff was then put to the side as they were immediately in, in crisis mode. So in the case of von der Leyen, I think that certainly helped her. What, what might have otherwise been an unremarkable year turned quite historic when the EU27 heads of state and government agreed on this landmark uh, 1.82 trillion euro uh, budget and recovery package in July, the signature component of that being joint debt, something that had just been taboo in Europe up until then. So uh, von der Leyen came out with an A minus. I've already heard some debate about whether, in fact, there's great inflation going on. Uh, that could be, uh, which we <laughs> have not done as well under other circumstances or maybe in another on another continent. But I think all the commissioners were put to the test, both in the sense of their own issues and in the context of the emergency that was playing out all around the world. Right, that's it. In a sense, you, you could almost kind of grade them on two fronts, the kind of regular job and then the kind of crisis management job that was kind of thrust upon them, you know, some more than others. I mean, that brings us very much, uh, Sarah, to, to the pandemic, to, to health policy. Um, how would you say the Commission performed overall? I guess maybe for some listeners also, just how much power did the Commission, does the Commission have to really manage this crisis? And how did it do in terms of, of using that power? Well, Andrew, you kind of hit on a key point, which is that the commission does not have a lot of power on health policy. It's a really jealously guarded authority of national governments. And so the thing that was remarkable to us is the commission actually put out, um, especially ahead of the second wave and now um, as we head into the holiday season, they've been putting out a lot of great, useful guidance are national governments paying much attention to it? No, they're still pretty much doing their own thing. Now, you can have some debates about whether a more politically persuasive health commissioner might have had more success at getting all these countries to get in line. Um, commissioner Stella Kyriakidis, the health commissioner, is known for kind of uh, being a conciliatory type person, having kind of a, a soft touch. So she she hasn't been able to kind of get them all on the same page. However, the commission has had a huge success, which is they negotiated and bought hundreds of millions of vaccines. I believe at this point it's enough for everybody on the continent, assuming all seven of the vaccines that they are either negotiating or have signed contracts for are approved. They'll be able to vaccinate everybody with what they've already reserved. Mm. Kalina, what about the climate front? As, as David mentioned, the Green Deal was probably the kind of flagship policy of, of this commission when it was originally launched. How much have they been able to, to stick to that as a priority and where do things stand right now? Surprisingly, the European Green Deal survived the pandemic. I mean, as, as COVID-19 hit Europe, there were a lot of voices that were worried that the commissions and the EU's broader climate ambitions would fall victim to, to the more immediate concerns and efforts to to not only stem the pandemic, but also manage the economic fallout. And surprisingly to some, 
But now, happily to many, the European Green Deal actually became the centerpiece of that economic recovery discussion. So the idea that Ursula von der Leyen was pushing very much is that going green would be the growth engine for the EU. So over the months, as the pandemic even was spreading still, but over the months, you could see that the Green Deal was making a comeback and that climate politics became again more of a central point in, in commissioners' um, speaking points. So mm. that's, been, that's been interesting to follow. Yeah. And what about on the target front? Because I think she's also tried to kind of up the ambition when it comes to climate targets, right? Exactly. So one of her big pledges when she took office was to raise the emissions reduction goal for 2030 from the current cut, which is 40% to as high as 55%. And in September this year, the commission came out with a proposal to raise it to that 55%, including rolling out a big analysis of how this is possible and how this could actually help the EU grow create new jobs and and revamp some of its industrial prowess in the, in the world. And so um, now you have big negotiations over that goal, which is also, as we're heading into the last weeks of the year, is very much at the center of the upcoming European Council, where the hope is that all of the EU leaders will sign up to that goal and finish the year with a climate bang. Yeah, well, it feels like everything is kind of coming to one big kind of giant European Council. It's all going to clash together when we'll be talking about the recovery fund. We'll be talking about these climate targets. We'll be talking about the coronavirus more generally. We'll be talking about other things, including uh, enlargement as well, possibly, and other topics. But another big priority for this commission, uh, Laura, in terms of the way the commission was set up, Ursula von der Leyen kind of in the way that she chose people and positions, set out her priorities that way. So she had an executive vice president, has an executive vice president for the Green Deal. And she has another one who is responsible for the kind of overarching uh, digital policies, uh, as well as being responsible for competition, Margareta Vestager. So how has she done on that digital front? Has she been able to maintain the same kind of focus there as the commission has done on the Green Deal? Well, it has been an interesting year for digital policy and the two main pieces of legislation that we really expect, the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, haven't been proposed yet. They're expected. We've just found out that they've been postponed a week. So they they will be presented on December 15th. So this will be the real test for the Commission in terms of digital but the Commission, and maybe Margarete Vestager more specifically, did have some major setbacks this year coming from the EU top court, who overturned her decision to make Apple pay 13 billion euros in back taxes to Ireland. So this has really cast a shadow on her legacy, but also on the Commission as a whole and whether they do have power against big tech, because ultimately this is what the whole Commission Digital program is about, reigning in big tech, as they say. And on, on the competition front, she opened two new investigations against Apple and Amazon, which could be seen as a positive sign. But again, investigations that she launched during her previous term, companies are saying that the fines and the market dynamic did not change anything, that Google is still dominant. So there is really a question of whether what the commission has done is really effective in terms of changing how digital markets work. Right. And of course, we're only a year into to a five-year term. So these are all kind of interim verdicts. But I think maybe even more so in the case of a lot of these digital policies, because as you say, they've got those two key um, measures still to come. And uh, also, they're going to be talking more about disinformation this week. In fact, they may have done so by the time that some of our listeners hear this podcast. David, let me come back to you. I mean, it feels like obviously the commission president job 
it's partly about managing relationships. It's about, uh, you know, maintaining good relationships with as many people as possible. How do you think she's doing in terms of managing those relationships with people in the parliament and also with, with EU leaders, you know, the, the heads of government, heads of state, who she also needs to try and keep on side? We definitely have a sense that von der Leyen is better managing up than managing down. Uh, she's very, very mindful, especially of the relationships with Berlin, you would expect uh, Angela Merkel as her mentor and political patron, uh, the single biggest reason why she is the commission president, but also Emmanuel Macron as the president of France. So in that sense, uh, von der Leyen has been pretty effective in at least being in touch with the most powerful capitals and uh, working those relationships. We've seen her struggle a little bit more, as you would expect, being the first president in a quarter century, essentially, who was not a former head of state or government, who hadn't sat in the European Council. She'd been in Brussels quite a bit as Minister of Defense at NATO and other formations as a German government minister, but had not really worked in the structures of the EU as much. Plus, she's got a much more complicated situation in the parliament, where in the past, the two big groups, uh, the center-right EPP and the center-left Social Democrats used to be able to form a sufficient majority to move uh, legislation forward. That's now long, no longer the case. And in that sense, it's been much harder for her. Where we did give her points, and again, I think it's all in context. Uh, you, know, you say that the job of the, the president is to manage uh, relationships. You know, like Maybe a politician's first job is to manage expectations. And because expectations in a crisis were so much lower, she's been able to exceed them. But one place where she did set a pretty ambitious bar was for gender parity in uh, the College of Commissioners itself and throughout the upper ranks of the civil service. And there she actually has done fairly well. Uh, in, in some ways, thanks to bad luck, uh, Phil Hogan, the commissioner, the trade commissioner from Ireland, was forced to resign in a, in a coronavirus uh, travel scandal. And she was able to make sure she got to name a woman replacement, Mairead McGuinness. Uh, that made sure that she's now at 13, 14 uh, out of 27, 13 women, the closest the commission has ever been to gender parity. So we are seeing some very significant things happen with von der Leyen in that sense. But some of the other aspects of it, uh, how well she gets along with her vice presidents. Uh, we don't always hear the, the best uh, uh, stuff. You know, again, it's uh, Brussels is a tricky place and she's still uh, still new to it when you consider, you know, how much focus has been on the crisis. Right. And it feels like she has a quite business-like style. I mean, I don't know if anyone's heard any different, but that's another thing that comes across in your interview uh, with Weber, where, you know, previously there were these, uh, what some people might term rather cosy dinners of, uh, you know, leading figures from the parliament and from the commission sitting down, kind of thrashing things out. You know, Manfred Weber said those dinners don't happen anymore. That may be partly due to the pandemic, but it does feel like she is much more all business, whereas her predecessor, Jean-Claude Juncker, had more of this kind of affable style, more maybe a bit more kind of clubbable. And this feels like, uh, I think she comes across quite, quite often as very much a CEO, pretty driven, pretty focused, pretty on-message CEO. She does not uh, ad-lib a great deal in our experience. Let's try and look forward now then. Uh, Sarah, let's come back to you. If we look ahead over the next 12 months, you know, what are the key moments? What are the, the key uh, things we'll be judging uh, von der Leyen and the commission by in the, in the health field? 
Right. Well, one of the things that Weber actually campaigned on and that von der Leyen enthusiastically embraced was the Europe's beating cancer plan that has been delayed due to the pandemic. But um, behind the scenes, the commission bureaucracy has still been hard at work on it. And it's a really important political message coming from Brussels that this is a European added value. It's sort of a sign of empathy. I remember when von der Leyen actually spoke at the sort of kickoff of the consideration of the cancer plan, she spoke very emotionally about the death of her own younger sister. And for somebody who does have such a business-like demeanor normally, it was an incredibly remarkable moment to really hear her as a person. My little sister's death has changed my life. And I guess it's also because of her death that I wanted to study medicine and that I became a medical doctor. And it is because of her and my mother and one of my brothers that I care so much about fighting cancer. So that's a big thing that, that we'll be looking out for. Of course, the, the vaccine rollout will be key. Again, that's going to be a test of whether the commission can convince EU member countries to all be on the same page. So I can definitely see some issues coming up with that. Mm, sounds like it. Kalina, what about on the climate front? If we, if we look ahead, what would be the key things we would judge the commission by this time next year? So next year is going to be, and it depends on where you stand, either a nightmarish or quite exciting year because the European Commission is actually supposed to roll out an enormous amount of legislative proposals to implement a higher emissions reduction target. So should leaders next week actually agree to back the 55% emissions cut by 2030, get ready for essentially changes to every legislation that even remotely impacts on energy and climate, um, including industry. So it's going to be very busy. And then, of course, depending on the proposals, the level of ambition, the extent of changes that the Commission will propose, and especially Franz Timmermans, who's the EU Green Deal chief, so he oversees all of the areas that fall under the Green Deal, be that agriculture, be that energy, transport, um, a vast array of, of other policy areas that are touched by climate targets, we will see um, how companies, how countries react to these proposals. And then I think we will be able to give a better and more detailed assessment of really how effective this commission is, because one has to take the European Green Deal still with a bit of a well-meaning distance, but it's, it's a policy proposal. It's, it's a vision. It's a plan. But the legislative proposals that would actually make this a reality haven't yet really come out. So you have had a lot of strategies, which are all great. But of course, a strategy only does so much. So I think next year is going to gonna tell us a bit more about the real political battles and especially about the, the money and the economic costs that will go hand in hand with a more ambitious um, climate agenda of the EU. Just on the point of personal comments, I think it's funny what, what Sarah said about having a bit more of an emotional von der Leyen. Franz Timmermans, who's um, known to many as already a vice president in, in Jean-Claude Juncker's commission, then of course also as a, as a very popular or at least powerful Dutch politician has kind of taken on a quite emotional attitude towards the Green Deal agenda. I think there's no single speech where he doesn't either share the fact that he's got a grandchild that could live in a, in a world that might be ravaged by climate change or not. Um, only two months ago, I held my first grandson. Looking at this tiny little baby, um, I was the, so probably the, the happiest pop uh, on earth. But I also worried uh, 
what sort of world would he live in when, he's, when he reaches 20 years of age? As well as uh, stressing his relationships to the coal mining industry, very personal ones, um, have been interesting to watch. So even as we're all sitting um, at home and giving these talks through Zooms and whatever, uh, some politicians have taken on to more personal notes in their speeches, which has been quite funny to watch. Mm. What about on the digital front, Laura? You know, over the next year, I mean, I guess, I guess the first things are these two big proposals that they're going to roll out in the coming weeks. Uh, maybe you can just talk a bit more about what those are and, and how those will be judged. So there are two different uh, pieces of legislation. The first one is supposed to regulate illegal content and illegal activities online. So that means when you find unsafe products on e-commerce platforms or hate speech online, uh, the rules are supposed to, to require platforms to do more against this. And the second piece of legislation is more competition focused. So it will regulate the relations between the bigger platforms, what they call gatekeepers, and their business users to avoid what the commission says are unfair trading practices. So the commission has pitched those two laws as rules that will govern the digital world for the next 30 years. So a lot of people here in Brussels see it as a make or break moment, that if it's not ambitious enough, then we miss the mark for the next 30 years. So there are a lot of expectation on those two legislation. But the other, the other test for the commission on digital next year will also be how Brussels interacts with the Biden administration on two key issues. First of all, digital taxation which the commission has tried and it has failed and they want to try again next year. And the other thing is data flow between the US and the EU, because the EU top court also struck down this year an agreement that the previous commission had negotiated, which has kind of stopped or is on the verge of stopping data flows between Europe and the United States. And the commission needs to renegotiate that again and it's hoping that the Biden administration would be helpful. Well, we'll see how we do on all of those fronts and maybe reconvene in a year. Who knows, maybe even in person. Wouldn't that be something? Uh, so for now, although we're going to invite you back at the end of the podcast to give us some lockdown uh, recommendations. But for now, Sarah, Laura, Kalina and David, thanks very much. In a moment, as promised, we'll hear from MEP Manfred Weber. But first, a quick reminder that we want to host an end-of-year virtual drinks with our listeners. So if you would like to join me, the podcast panel, and other listeners, just email us at podcast at politico.eu. Again, that's podcast at politico.eu. The email doesn't have to be anything elaborate. Uh, the virtual gathering probably won't be either, uh, but it might be fun. It'll certainly be informal and we'd love to meet as many of you virtually as we can. Just tell us if you're interested and we'll get back to you with more details. Now we'll take a short break and then get to that interview with Manfred Weber. A message from Equinor. Offshore wind farms harvesting power from the strong winds out at sea are one of our solutions for Europe's energy transition. Our offshore wind farms in Europe already generate enough electricity to power the equivalent of one million homes. And we have developed the world's first floating wind farm, enabling the harvest of the winds in deeper waters. Now we are developing the world's largest offshore wind farm, Dodger Bank in the UK North Sea. It alone can power 4.5 million homes. 
Offshore wind projects are getting bigger and they are getting more complex. We in Equinor see a sea of opportunities off the coast of Europe to support the energy transition and an industrial renewal. Now let's hear from Manfred Weber, leader of the centre-right European People's Party group, the biggest in the European Parliament. You're going to hear highlights from an interview he did with Politico's David Herzenhorn and Maya de la Baum. They talk mostly about Weber's reflections on the first year of the von der Leyen Commission. But to get started, Maya asked Weber to explain why MEPs from Hungary's Fidesz, the ruling party, remain part of the EPP group in the parliament, even though Fidesz is currently suspended from the EPP party. For the EPP, we have, uh, we have a clear line. We, we decided already to uh, suspend the uh, Fidesz party inside of the European People's Party. There is no Fidesz member anymore in any kind of board or presidency of the EPP, and they have no voting right in the party anymore. So that's the state of play there. And you know, if we wouldn't have experienced uh, COVID, there would already be a decision about the expos- to expel uh, Fidesz from the EPP. It's only due to COVID. So that's why we cannot act. Uh, but that's a legal situation and we have to respect rule of law also internally. So that's why the COVID is blocking us on this. The main message is the EPP is fully on board with all the other groups that we are defending this rule of law mechanism. It was only due to the unity of the European Parliament that we managed to have this rule of law mechanism now on the table. The Council failed in July. They failed to find a good compromise and we healed this uh, failure. And, and that is the big achievement. And that's why I was clear we are not ready for any kind of reopening of the negotiations. We will not go one millimeter on, on what is achieved because there is the minimum and we, uh, we defend this now. But suspension is from the party, not from the group. So why would you not suspend them from the group? The situation is that these two points are linked to each other because formally all party members are party are also group members. That is a formal situation. And that's why the party must act now and then automatically the Fidesz will leave. We have a different situation because even if I don't like the position of Fidesz and even having in mind that I activated Article 7 against Hungary with my vote and with the overwhelming majority of the group. So even having these things in mind, all Fidesz members are elected members of the European Parliament. They have a mandate. They have to, to have the right to contribute to the, to the situation. Again, it's linked to the party decision. I think that's obvious. And that's why uh, we, are, we are blocked until we have uh, the decision of the party. Obviously, nobody expected this pandemic. But December 1st of last year, a new commission took office. And uh, maybe your just general assessment of how this commission is done. And then we'll, we have a few specific questions, but we wanted to first start with just your overview. There's been a lot of, obviously, big decisions on the pandemic response, but maybe some of the legislating is only beginning recently. I also would say the start was uh, good. The first year was a good year for Europe in general. And this has two, let me say, main baskets, main elements. One element is what is the main headline for the upcoming five years? And there was a law and the whole commission team was clear that Green Deal And this big transformation process ahead of the European economy is the driving element for this mandate for these five years ahead of us. Uh, Europe is leading uh, even on global level now with Joe Biden hopefully following us now. The Chinese are following. Paris is really in the mind of everyone on global level. So that is the main headline. And that was well chosen. That is a good decision that we have this and that the commission is really uh, forward looking. And the second is then the crisis. You mentioned it. 
nobody expected such a big crisis for the European Union. And having in mind that in general, in the beginning of this year, in the first wave, Europe failed. Europe didn't function. Yeah. When I have the closure of the orders in mind, when I have uh, the the non-existing solidarity on, on masks in mind and about uh, health uh, su support and so on, that was a real a real disaster for Europe. And I think during summer, Europe was using the time, was investing in more capacity to do it together. And now for the second wave, we are much better prepared. So borders are open. We have uh, a better cooperation. We have common standards on, on identification, what is, a, what is a hotspot and what is not a hotspot. And we have uh, also the most powerful success is the vaccine strategy for Europe uh, to guarantee that there is no first and second class European when it is about the vaccine, when it is about the access to these important uh, medicine and, and vaccine now, uh, that uh, the poor countries have the same access like the rich countries have. And that is a big message of solidarity in Europe. So having this in mind, Europe delivered and additionally Council delivered with uh, MFF and especially with the recovery fund. So that's why I think the first year was well messaging on the most important priority for Europe. And now we have to deliver. And secondly, the management of the crisis after the first negative experience was finally positive. So we are on a good way. But in terms of, since you spoke of management, can you describe a little bit how you feel the Commission is managing compared to you under Juncker, for instance? What would you say about this new Commission? How different is it? Well, first I would say that the structure is working, though, in a way that, for example, the idea of these three executive vice presidents to prepare the college, the decision-making process, and to organize this is, uh, is positive. I sense, I feel also that everybody wants to deliver um, I also would see that uh, Ursula is picking up the lead in a lot of important fields, especially when I refer to the last uh, State of the Union speech, when she describes about in which Europe do we want to live, for example, about respecting uh, minorities, respecting gay people, and, and, and all these ideas about how do we want to live in the future. That is ambitious, that is good, that is giving also an idea that we are not only a technocratic level, we are a political level, and we have to define in which world we want to live tomorrow. When we go to the concrete issues, there are for sure some of the ideas uh, I would wish to see uh, even strengthened. For example, I was not happy that the proposal for the migration package was so late in this year. So this was probably too late for solving it uh, during the German presidency. So there, uh, as an EPP, I want to see more engagement. I want to see also a strong strategy fight against uh, terror and uh, security fight against uh, terror online content, for example. These issues are extremely important and uh, Europe has to deliver. Yeah, we have a clear European responsibility. And if I may, I would also add that we have the Green Deal and this is an ambitious approach and we show as EPP that we will deliver. But I think for 2021, we have to equally underline that Green Deal is one of the main pillars for this mandate. But due to COVID and due to the developments of 2020, we also have to establish a second pillar, and that is jobs, 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 because the economic impact of this crisis is so dramatic, is so huge. For the moment, we are trying to manage to not increase this damage, huh? but that is not a growth strategy for the moment. That is not bringing back jobs and economic strengths for Europe. Maybe in, in, in this context, we could then ask you to assess the interface between Parliament and the other institutions, specifically the 
commission, but but also the council, which you mentioned, left a, left a loose end on rule of law, and, and you made me think they also left a loose end in a way with Poland on um, on climate targets back uh, last December. But it feels that they've still not been able in this new leadership structure to find the stable majority in parliament among the three groups. But do you see the commission president still trying to find where she has the support to really move the agenda forward in the parliament because of the new the new balance? Well, for me and for my group, uh, you know, we have the advantage that uh, the commission president is uh, EPP. So we have a direct and uh, good cooperation. So there is, uh, from from our point of view, uh, no problem. And I would even add that uh, we are already very good in implementing our main election promises as EPP. And uh, for the general, uh, let me say, contact between Parliament and Commission, uh, we have our regular meetings with uh, Ursula, also on group leader level. But you are right. I would say that uh, this, uh, the cooperation with uh, Martin Schulz and Jean-Claude Juncker and, and me as a group leader of the EPP, there was a clear understanding about uh, the uh, clear cooperation, let me say, between uh, the uh, Parliament and the Commission had a lot to do with the idea of the Spitzenkandidaten concept beginning of 2014. So there was a clear common understanding on the table. But I wouldn't criticize this because we are now, we are having there a good, uh, good cooperation. And again, this uh, this new format, this new understanding is based on, on a lot of respect. So uh, when we listen to each other and it's probably even respecting more the different role of the institutions. So Ursula is defending the right of initiative for the commission that she has the task and she has the right to initiate things. But on the other hand, she's also respecting that we are the legislator finally, that we are doing the jobs on the legislation. That is a respectful cooperation. And for the moment, I would say it works. So the style is different because the personalities are different, but it works. But you, if I may, you said there was clear cooperation with Juncker, Schulz, and I even remember back uh, years ago, you had this G5 or you were all having dinner all together. This doesn't happen anymore. You know, it, was it easier before? It was, uh, it was different, let me say. Yeah. In this. It was different and it was in a way more neutral because, uh, again, the leading personalities had a clear understanding about what to do and how to, how to bring parliament and commission closer together. But we had also in the former years uh, our conflicts and our problems and our challenges to overcome. So I think that is part of the normal process. Again, the spirit is good. The spirit is very good. So Ursula feels that she depends on a majority in the European Parliament. She serves also to the, to the Democratic Chamber of Europe, and that is European Parliament. So there is a good common understanding on the table. And uh, the big challenge is uh, then more, I would say, uh, in the middle and at the end of this mandate. You know how Europe works. For the moment, we have not so much new initiatives on the table on the legislative side. That is now the case. So the, uh, the uh, initiatives will now arrive. And then it will become more tense and it will become more challenging for all of us. And I hope that we can keep this approach, that we have a common understanding. It's not time for party politics for the moment. It's time to deliver. And I must also underline that not only the personalities changed, we also must recognize that the parliament changed a lot. So we have not so much, uh, let me say, the unity anymore inside of the groups. Uh, that is challenging for all of us. 
But having this in mind, I think in a lot of important fields, uh, we are delivering. And again, the most important in autumn was for sure the debate about MFF rule of law. And there the European Parliament is exactly delivered like we proposed it, so the timeline was kept. And we delivered also on content. I think we do our job. So thanks to David and Maya for bringing us that conversation with Manfred Weber. And our special uh, one-year anniversary commission panel is back uh, to give us some recommendations, uh, things to read or to listen to or to watch to help get us through what is still uh, lockdown all across Europe in various forms. Uh, Let's start with Kalina. What's your tip? Um, I'm going back, oldies but goldies, and I say go and watch Men in Black. It made me laugh so much, and it gave me lots of good lessons how to how to survive in a in a job interview when I don't know what I'm there for and what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh wow! Okay, well you got the thumbs up on the on the Zoom call from Sarah when you mentioned that. So Sarah, what's yours? Well, I have not been consuming very much pop culture lately because I am putting the finishing touches on the Politico 28. So my recommendation for all of you be to tune in at lunchtime on Monday. Uh, many of your of your podcast favorites will be participating. David will be interviewing NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, and we will um, even have like a little quiz for everybody to participate in. So register at politico.eu, join us at noon on Monday, and then you have the whole rest of the year to to read through the 28 profiles. Right, the Politico 28. Those are our rankings of the, of, the, of the top politicians who either are in Europe or influence Europe. So thanks, Sarah. That's actually not a recommendation. It's a plug, but we will allow it in this case. Uh, David, what's yours? Well, you can't do better than EU Confidential, but if you have to look elsewhere for listening, uh, I would send people to... Michael Lewis, the author, has a terrific podcast called Against the Rules uh, that looks at how society in general has just turned viciously against referees of all types. And so for those of us who cover lots of issues uh, where referees are crucial, whether that's in politics or in sports, it's quite an interesting listen. Wow, that does sound interesting. I mean, one of the big things that's happened in in football uh, recently is that we've got more referees, but it doesn't seem to have helped. Laura, what's yours? When I'm revisiting TV shows from the early 2000s, so so I'm watching The West Wing, which I recommend to everyone who hasn't watched it yet. Okay, The West Wing. Yeah, this is the great thing about, you know, having all this stuff available digitally, right? You can you can dig back into to some classics that you may have missed uh, before or that you want to enjoy again. And we hope people will do that for this podcast as well. I'm sure, uh, you know, it'll be recommended in years to come. But for now, once again, Sarah, Laura, Kalina and David, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please subscribe to the podcast by clicking subscribe or follow so you get every episode in your feed as soon as it's published. We'd love a review too if you're feeling charitable as the end of the year approaches. Many thanks to the listener who recently gave us five stars despite making very clear they'd like to see some improvements. I'll have a word with Matt about his historical references. All feedback is welcome. You can also email it to us at podcast.politico.eu. Same address for those end-of-year virtual drinks, podcast at politico.eu. Finally, a heads up that we may publish next week's episode later than usual, just to make sure it's as fresh as it can possibly be. We have a big European Council summit next Thursday and Friday, and right now a lot of big issues are still to be resolved. So we'll make a call during the summit on the right moment to gather our thoughts and share them with you. 
Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.